Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Kim Rivers' dad was a Jacksonville sheriff's deputy while she was growing up. For a time, she says, he worked with the undercover narcotics unit. Today, Rivers leads the largest dispensary of medical marijuana in Florida. She's the CEO of TrueLeaf. It's a job she came to after working as a corporate lawyer. She told her police officer dad of her new career in marijuana over dinner one night. You know, my dad looked at me and he said, um, he said, you know, he's like, and he calls me Kimmy. So he said, you know, Kimmy, um, I, I'm just going to say, go, go get it, girl, because I know you well enough that it doesn't matter what I say, you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> Now, the company she runs now owns and runs more than two dozen shops dispensing medical marijuana, including eight here in South Florida. There's also one in California. It has a medical marijuana operator in Massachusetts and just bought a dispensary in Connecticut. TrueLeaf was among the first and has been the most aggressive player in the fast-growing medical marijuana industry, especially here in Florida. It was the first to open a dispensary in the summer of 2016. That was in Tallahassee, and it was before Florida voters would okay a constitutional amendment expanding the use of medical marijuana. By the fall of 2017, more than 34,000 Floridians had applied for and received their medical marijuana ID cards. Today, more than 200,000 Floridians have the okay to be prescribed marijuana. And more than 2,200 doctors have qualified with the state to write those prescriptions. The number of people who can legally get marijuana in Florida has more than doubled in just the past year. An average of more than 10,000 people a month qualified to get prescription marijuana. The state of the medical marijuana business in Florida is hot. WLRN's Danny Rivero and I spoke with TrueLeaf CEO Kim Rivers about her business. The state of, of medical marijuana in Florida is is very robust and it's growing all the time. Uh, so Florida has statistically the largest and fastest growing patient base of any medical marijuana program um, in the country. The rate at which patients are onboarding into the program has been um, a bit a bit of a surprise, I think, to uh, to policymakers in particular. And are you seeing least. that kind of growth show up at the counter at True Leave dispensaries? Absolutely. We say in the cannabis industry that every year it's kind of like dog years. So each year it's about seven years in a, in a typical business growth cycle. And, and just to put it into perspective, truly, we just had our, uh, our year-end um, earnings call a few weeks ago, and uh, we grew 419% year over year from 2017 to 2018. So when we first started and opened our first store about almost three years ago now in Tallahassee, um, there were no patients um, in the program at Florida at all. I mean, literally, we had to medically transport in the first patient to make the first sale in Florida. As the conditions have expanded, um, the, the patient onboarding has has grown tremendously. And as, of course, uh, Florida's first and then largest medical marijuana company, we have uh, certainly paced to keep up with that growth. And uh, we, we certainly are seeing um, increased demand week over week um, at the counter as well. And Kim, I'm wondering if the the recent uh, passage of of legislation enabling smoking medical marijuana, uh, which happened just this last legislative session, um, if that is immediately impacting your your bottom line, are you seeing more people coming into the stores that are looking for smokable as opposed to say edibles? 
Well, edibles, unfortunately, in Florida is not allowed yet. Um, so we are waiting on rulemaking by the Department of Health for edibles, although we do think that that will be a similar growth catalyst um, for sales in Florida as well. But with smokable, it's been very interesting. Um, so a couple of things have happened. Um, first, the actual rate of patient onboarding has increased. So um, before smoking uh, was allowed, um, we had an average onboarding of about 2,000 patients uh, per week. And now that's up. And in the six-week trailing average, that's up by about 20 so it's something that we follow very closely. So about um, 2,500 patients per week then? That's right. About 2,500. That's correct. And um, so it will be interesting to see if that trend continues. Um, and, and we think that really there was a stable of patients who simply didn't see the product that they were looking for um, on the shelves yet in Florida and, and waited until that law changed to then enter the program. But also in addition, so the way that the law is written in Florida was smokable, um, it requires the patient to actually physically go back in if they have a current recommendation and see their doctor again to get smokable um, added as a, as a form factor. And so even with that extra step, we're seeing in terms of product mix, um, smokable flour um, makes up currently approximately 30% of True Leaf's product mix. And it, we've started selling smokable flour on March 18th. So it's been a ramp in terms of um, in terms of product mix. And so uh, we think that if, if we look at other states that have a medical program that allow both uh, smokable and oil format pro, um, products, on average, it ends up being approximately 40 to, you know, we think that it could be up to 50% in Florida just because of the pent-up demand, but we think that it will stabilize around that 40, 45% mark in terms of a product mix. So just to clarify, within about two months of smokable being allowed, it, those products are already making up about 30% of your, of your sales at this point? Of our sales, that's right, yep. And do you see that continuing this year? We do. So we think that that's, that's continue, going to continue to grow as both patients that are looking for smokable um, enter the program and then also as existing patients either go back to their physicians specifically to add smoking or when they have to go back to their physicians to renew their card, which they are required to do annually, um, at that point they'll have the option um, as long as they qualify and it's determined an acceptable form by their physician to add smokable to their recommendation. So we do think that that, that product segment will continue to grow um, throughout the year for sure. With such rapid growth over the last couple of months of, of smokable uh, medical marijuana, how have you guys been keeping up with that on the, the, the supply side? You know, Florida has a vertically integrated model, um, which yeah. requires, you know, cultivation, which can take weeks or months. Um, are you keeping up with the supply side of that demand? So we anticipated um, smokable coming. Um, I think it was no, if you were following um, medical marijuana in Florida, it, it was no surprise uh, that, that smokable was coming down the pipe. We went ahead and made the investment back in 2018 to uh, build out additional cultivation square footage, about 126,000 square feet um, in preparation for, um, for flower sales. And um, so, but it is a continual supply chain uh, management business. Um, I think that's something that's maybe not focused on as much. Um, I think that outwardly facing folks see the retail stores, but as you mentioned in Florida, it is a strict vertical model, which is very different than other states. And so everything that we sell in our stores or that we deliver, uh, to, we do next day delivery across the state, um, is grown in our facility. And it's a requirement in Florida that that, that be the case. And then 
and then also all 185 SKUs that we sell of different products come from from that cultivation, those cultivation activities. And so it is very important that we are constantly, that's why these numbers are so important to us. We monitor growth rates to make sure that we're building out facilities at the, at the, the correct pace to keep up with um, that increased demand. Has that growth forecast changed the financial forecast that TrueLeave is expecting <laughs> in 2019 when you release those quarterly financial results back in April and you annualize mm -hmm. those results, you were looking forward to revenue growing a little bit more than 100% this year compared right. to last year. Has that number changed with the smokable flower now making up 30% of your Florida uh, sales? Well, I would say stay tuned. Um, so we will be um, offering new projected guidance. Um, we need to get through our first uh Q1 uh, reviewed financials and earnings call, which will be at the end of uh, this month, so the end of May. And then uh, we basically signaled to the market that sometime in June, we'll be releasing um, an updated forecast because the last projection model that we released was back when we went public in September of 2018. And of course, a lot has changed um, between then and now. And like I said, the cannabis business moves very quickly. And so we do like to be very realistic with our, um, with our numbers and, and making sure that we're putting good, solid um, data behind them. And so we did want to wait until we had a little bit more um, distance from when smoking came on board and then also to see the the, the rate of uh, patient adoption and so in the product mix. So those two things we think by June will have enough data points to be able to adequately um, and accurately forecast or reforecast um, our numbers for uh, both 2019, 2020, and then we'll put out some 2021 numbers as well. In 2018, you mentioned that revenues grew by over 400 uh, percent. Your yeah. original forecast for 2019 was for revenue growth to increase by 108 percent. Substantial number, no doubt about it, Kim, but a pretty substantial <laughs> slowdown, at least on the projected numbers. But it sounds like you're pretty confident that's going to change considerably when you update investors in June. Like I said, to to be determined. Um, you know, I think that when you when you come into a market and you have to remember where we were in uh, in the beginning of 2018, right? Um, so again, there were there were not as many uh, either physicians or patients, quite frankly, in the Florida program. Um, so it's pretty typical um, when you have adoption that you have kind of this um, increased kind of ramp up, quick ramp up, and then you'll get more of a steady climb. And so that that 2,000 patients number was really consistent throughout uh, throughout 2018 um, post the initial ramp. Um, and these are all things, of course, that we, again, track weekly with data that we receive from the Florida Department of Health. Uh, so again, looking at that and then modeling it out very specifically, again, tied to physician activity. So we have to always remember that the number of physicians that we have in the program is, in some respects, as important as the number of patients we have in the program. Because if we don't have enough physicians or if the physicians number of physicians aren't keeping up with the number of patients, that creates a bottleneck in terms of how many patients can be onboarded into the program. So uh, the number of physicians, quite frankly, in Florida hasn't kept up with the patient demand, and we're starting to see a lag in wait time. Um, again, remember that not only is it just new patients entering the market that have to see those physicians, but it's also renewal patients. So that same doctor can have double, triple uh, the number of, of appointments. And at some point, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. So we do and have been focused on, um, in addition to 
the patient, uh, the patient growth number, also looking at that physician growth number as physician practices are looking for doctors who are interested in becoming authorized ordering physicians. That's Kim Rivers. She's CEO of TrueLeave, the largest medical marijuana operator in Florida. The company's stock is publicly traded on the Canadian Securities Exchange, which hosts several marijuana company stocks. Now, she says one challenge TrueLeave has experienced is finding an accounting firm familiar with Canadian accounting rules and willing to work with an American marijuana company. She expects to release the company's first quarter financial results before the end of this month. Now, still to come, the fight to grow the industry with reluctant regulators. Having the, the, the rules laid out and for those to be equally applied, I think is important in any industry. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Today we're talking about the medical marijuana business. TrueLeaf was the first company to open a medical marijuana dispensary in Florida. That was in 2016 in Tallahassee, when the only legal medical marijuana was low THC cannabis oil for limited treatments. Today, thanks to a voter-approved constitutional amendment and court fights, legal medical marijuana can be prescribed for a wider range of ailments, and it can be smoked. TrueLeaf has expanded to 27 stores, including eight here in South Florida. It could have up to 49 stores by 2020. That's more than the state-mandated limit. It's because of a proposed settlement with the state after a court fight, a settlement TrueLeaf's competitors now would like to take advantage of to open up more stores than allowed under current state law. WLRN's Danny Rivero and I spoke with TrueLeaf CEO Kim Rivers about the company's dispensaries and its competition. 49 dispensaries currently is the maximum number that we would be allowed to open. Um, Keep in mind that for every 100,000 patients that enters the program, uh, each company is uh, granted another five store openings. So uh, we do expect that we will cross that 300,000 patient number uh, sometime um, in in this year, 2019, maybe late Q3, early Q4. So uh, that number will increase then by an additional five. Kim, two of your competitors, Sotera and, and Cureleaf, are asking the state for the same kind of treatment that you guys got after fighting and winning um, with the state for these administrative kind of issues that will allow you to open 49 storefronts statewide. Do you support those efforts? I mean, that would be kind of natural competition if they were also able to increase their numbers. Is that right? Sure. So great question. So when the law first came out um, back in uh, 2015, we were awarded a license. Uh, There was not a cap on dispensaries. So it was an unlimited cultivation, processing and uh, dispensaries statewide. Uh, so truly followed what we believed was the mandate from um, the legislature at the time to begin opening stores and providing patients access to medical cannabis. Uh, then if you fast forward to after the amendment passed, loop around to that spring session, um, the legislature put a cap on the number of stores. And it's a temporary cap, which is another important point. So it was basically put into law that each uh company could have 25 store locations and that with every 100,000 patients, as I mentioned, five additional locations were are granted automatically. When that cap was put into place, um, interestingly, the legislature put a severability clause right underneath the cap because we were arguing the entire time that that was simply unconstitutional and 
two, really we had two arguments. One, you're changing the rules of the game um, under which we applied for our license. Number two, this is unconstitutional because it's an arbitrary limitation on patient access, which was an important cornerstone of Amendment 2. So immediately after legislative session, um, we filed a lawsuit um, against the state um, making those two arguments. We actually had, at that point in time, seven locations actually open and had been servicing patients, and we had 26 locations. We had submitted specific amendments, location amendments, to the Department of Health. The judge basically made a determination that based on the fact that we had seven stores actually open, plus out of that those 26, another seven of those stores would be considered vested, um, meaning that we had you know, relied on and had expended a certain amount of funds and made a certain certain um, amount of effort towards opening those locations, that those 14 locations would be considered basically locations that should not be counted against the cap. Um, in the alternative, the trial court ruled that, in addition, the cap construct in general was unconstitutional. So at that point, um, we basically had... Um, uh, we had we had a, a victory, right? Uh, and then it was a question of appeal, whether or not the state was going to appeal. Right. So at that point, the state came to us, um, the governor's office, and said, look, you know, we, we think it's in everybody's best interest to go ahead and, and resolve this. Um, we agree with the 14 under the vesting uh, argument as outlined by the, the lower court judge. And the reason why, quite frankly, Truly decided to take the settlement is because the cap in its entirety is scheduled to sunset in 2020. Yeah, April of so 2020 when we, is when the cap April of is eliminated right. in Florida and you can open up it's, as many dispensaries as correct. the market allows, as your investors uh, reward right. you with. But the two competitors, Certera right. uh, and Cureleaf, are essentially arguing yep. that uh, Trulief successfully had 14 locations grandfathered in prior to the cap. Mm-hmm. And right. they're arguing that that kind of grandfathering should be applicable for Certera and Cureleaf. Do you support that argument? Yeah, I think that as long as they can show that they had a certain number of stores open and that they had expended a certain amount of resources towards a specific number um, of stores, and I think as long as the same standard is applied and the same analysis is provided, um, then I think that, that sure, Um now, to be clear, what I don't think is fair would be if a different standard was applied. It's important to note that Trulieve has a settlement here. This was not a judicial decision on the 14 stores plus a maximum of 35 equaling uh, up to 49 by April of 2020. That this is a settlement with the state that's still uh, subject to court approval, but this wasn't a judge saying, here's how the rules of the road are for these other stores. Right. And so your argument is for those other stores to go through the process, they need to play by the same rules that you agreed with the state on. That's I think that that's I think that that's right. Um, and I think that, you know, that's that's true in in any business. Right. I mean, I think that um, just having having the, the, the rules laid out and for those to be equally applied, um, I think is important in any industry. Right now, the state has 14 medical marijuana licensed growers, and it's about to add eight more to that number. Um, how do you expect that that would impact your your bottom line or just your overall market share? We, and, and I say often, um, it's never a good business philosophy to um, 
to think that um, a business only survives in the absence of competition. Uh, we actually, and, and I actually, have welcomed competition. I think it's healthy for the industry. Uh, I think that Florida is a very large market, and it's growing faster than any other market in the country. And there's room for a number of, of good players. I think what's most important is that they are, in fact, good players and uh, that they are moving forward. I think one of the challenges in, in Florida has been uh, that a number of companies, um, quite frankly, have have uh, have sat on licenses. They haven't moved forward um, with production, and uh, it's caused um, some some angst. Um, certainly, at the both at the policymaking level as well as at the patient level. Um, you know, patients in Florida, I believe, deserve uh, choice. I believe that they deserve access, and um, I, I welcome and hope that um, that you know the companies that are coming online. Are, um, are are prepared to, to provide to provide that level of service to to, uh, to the patients of Florida. Does truly support having a cap on the number of medical marijuana cultivation licenses in Florida? We have never taken a position. Um, we have never, um, nor would we lobby for for or against. Um, we think that that's that's quite frankly uh, the policymaker's job. Who are your patients? So, uh, and we and we do say that we don't have patients; we have true leavers. Um, so, our true leavers um, are are very representative of the Florida demographic. So, our average patient age is fifty, approximately fifty years old. Um, we are watching that very very carefully because we're interested to see if demographics may shift um, as these new product segments are allowed in Florida, specifically um, smokable flower as well as edibles. About an even split between um, men and women. So. Um, you know, whereas in other markets, kind of interestingly enough, it does tend to trend a little bit more male. In Florida, it has been uh, just about 50-50. How about geographic location? So in terms of geographic location, um, it does tend to matter where doctor um, activity is. is. So for um, a bit of time, Tallahassee and the Panhandle, as an example, had very few patients, and those were some of our lower-performing stores, um, and I believe quite simply um, one of the driving factors was the fact that we didn't have very many um, at all um, recommending physicians. So, and it, they were very expensive. Uh, whereas in an area like Tampa, um, in St. Pete, in Clearwater, very high level of physician activity. And so naturally there was a higher number of patients um, that could access our product um, early on. Um, we're continuing to, of course, see a lot of growth in South Florida. Um, again, that's the most populated area of the state, um, so not surprising. But um, the the top performing stores have shifted um, a bit over time as, again, the program has matured and as more as more folks enter it. How so? Oh, well, just the Tallahassee store okay. um, initially was one of our, yeah. was one of our, you know, lower performing and it now is uh, mid to upper tier, upper tier store, um, you know, depending on the month, but has had a high growth rate month over month. Could you share with us what an average dispensary monthly gross looks like? So, um, I've, I've publicly and on earnings call said that our average, our average store is approximately $6 million a year, um, historically. So that would be on average. And how are people paying? Uh, so people are required to pay, uh, currently, um, cash, or uh, we actually have an app. We partner with a company called CanPay, and so uh, patients can download the app and then uh, pay electronically 
um, at the store. So they have they have two options, but I would say that the majority of our business is done in cash. Um, I should mention we do have a banking relationship um, with a state chartered bank, and so we do have um, very regular uh, cash pickups by Armored Car Service. Uh, very little cash on hand, um, and that's worked out. That's worked out great. And knock on wood, there have not been any uh, security incidents at any of our locations. It's worked out great, but I imagine lugging large amounts of cash from here to there is is an additional security concern and, and just aspect of the business that ideally you wouldn't have to deal with. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, again, we have, you know, we have a contractual relationship where it's an armored car service that comes to our store. So we're not actually physically um, transporting cash, thankfully. Um, but sure. I mean, I think for, for a lot of reasons, um, you know, being able to transition to, um, you know, the utilization of of cards would be, um, would be, you know, preferred. And I mean, I guess the question is, at what point um, do some of the larger institutions um, become comfortable uh, with the industry in in their compliance departments, um, approve uh, approve their participation. Speaking with Kim Rivers, CEO of medical marijuana company TrueLeaf. Now, still to come, how the company meets the challenge of raising money and banking its marijuana business. We can't get a traditional loan, which is one of the reasons that you see, I believe, so many cannabis companies in the U.S. T- you know, listing on the Canadian exchange. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. The last time the federal government gave any guidance to the financial industry over how to deal with the money from marijuana businesses in states where it's legal was back in 2014. At the time, 20 states in Washington, D.C. had legalized some form of marijuana. Today, 33 states now allow some type of marijuana use, including Florida. But marijuana remains illegal under federal law, and so many banks and other financial businesses are reluctant to deal with marijuana money. TrueLeave is the largest operator of medical marijuana dispensaries in Florida. The reluctance by the financial industry to work with marijuana businesses has led several companies like TrueLeave to publicly list shares of their company in Canada, not America, as a way to raise money. When we spoke with CEO Kim Rivers earlier this month, she did not share with us what bank the company uses in Florida. What I can tell you is that it is with a state chartered bank. Um, so the issue that we run into as an industry is when you are dealing with federally chartered um, financial institutions. And so because of the lack of clarity um, on at the federal level, um, those institutions uh, generally do not participate in, in the cannabis industry. Now, what we are seeing as a trend is some national credit unions um, getting into the business. Um, we have not yet established a relationship with um, a national credit union. Um, part of the reason is just the fee structure is uh, <laughs> um, very favorable for the uh, for the credit union. Um, and uh, it'd and be more so expensive for truly to bank at a credit more, union. Definitely. Than it would be a state well, bank. one of the, that's right. That's right. At least one of the national credit unions that have have really. Um, formed specifically around this industry. So, um, so it's, working it's with the state charter bank has allowed you to uh, pay payroll 
for instance. I mean, I assume right. you pay your That's employees right. in checks, not in envelopes of cash. We do. <laughs> okay. We just, do. Just checking. Thankfully. Right. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> no question unasked here at WLRN. Um, yes. But also vendors for that matter, because you're dealing yes. with interstate vendors. And so you yes. mentioned the state chartered banks feel perhaps mm-hmm. a bit more comfortable because they're not uh, uh, nationally chartered, where the federal law still has marijuana as an illegal controlled substance. So the state chartered banks are happy to to take your cash, but then that cash is going to go out of state as you pay your vendors, right? Right. That's right. And and the bank is comfortable with that. That has not yet been a been an issue. I'll I'll hope that my bank doesn't listen to this program. I'm just kidding. And, um, no, and, it but you're also it send, you're also sending the money internationally as well because that's right. The company is uh, is traded in Canada. Well, and re- regardless, I mean, we do have international vendors. Um, to be clear, so it is it is. I mean, we have to have a uh, a, a true um, you know from that standpoint ability to, as you as you stated, you know, make payroll wire funds. Um, I mean, we are, um, you know, we're a significant business and um, we do have um, business activities that we need to, we need to be able to, to transact. Has the reluctance of the financial services industry to engage with the medical marijuana business in Florida, has that limited your growth? Um, I wouldn't say that it has limited our growth Per se, I would say that it has, in some in some instances, it makes things more expensive. We can't get a traditional loan, which is one of the reasons that you see, I believe, so many cannabis companies in the U.S. T- you know, listing on the Canadian exchange because we are a a plant touching business. We do not have the option of listing in the U.S. on um, with the SEC. So on the NASDAQ Securities and Exchange York- Commission, which deals with federal right. law, and federal law still outlaws marijuana. But let me ask That's you about correct. that loan yep. situation. Why don't banks offer lending services? Because because they would be lending to a federally illegal business. But if they're state chartered banks, they're willing to take your money. So this. This, that's right. And so the state chartered bank, but you have to understand their legal lending uh, capacity as a state chartered bank is um, traditionally lower um, than a, in a federally regulated uh, national bank. And so we could get, um, to be clear, you know, a loan, but it wouldn't necessarily be um, significant um, relative to our capital needs. So um, we are limited in the type of financial products that we're able to take advantage of in our business. And again, this is true of companies um, across the country. You've relied on borrowed money from related parties, from directors of the company, from shareholders. You've done private placement of shares. Uh, And so I'm wondering, like, as you've gone through these other more expensive ways to raise money, some of these loans uh, or these promissory notes come with 12% interest rates, according to your financial filings. That's right. And that 12% interest rate, by the way, is very low for cannabis companies. <laughs> Extremely high compared so, to the interest rate that's, that's right. out there for right. for small and medium-sized businesses that they could get in a Correct. traditional business, business loan, operating loan. So that's why I wanted to ask again, how is the financial reality of uh, almost a hands-off approach when it comes to the traditional banking industry, how is that affecting mm-hmm. your ability to grow in Florida? 
it was one of the reasons why we decided to um, to to go public. And so with the RTO, uh, which is a reverse takeover, which is the mechanism by which we listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange, when we went public, um, the company basically raised approximately $60 million um, through that public offering. And so um, with that capital, we're then able to fund growth. Um, in addition to that, we've been very focused um, and as one of the very um, – few um, um, cash flow positive cannabis businesses, um, we are able to reinvest and we do reinvest every month um, free cash flow back into capital expenditures. So on the cultivation facilities that we mentioned, on the um, on the new dispensary activity, and, and basically that funds our growth. That being said, um, would we love to have access to traditional um, to traditional financing at competitive rates, of course, um, because when you look at, you know, cost of capital and you look at um, where we are and, and the strength of our the strength of our financial statements, quite frankly, and the strength of our balance sheet, um, if we were in any other business aside from cannabis, um, we would have the ability to have, I believe, a, um, you know, a, a much, a much uh, more efficient um, utilization of capital if we were able to avail ourselves to traditional uh, financing. The company has filed paperwork for the possible sale of up to a quarter of a billion Canadian dollars worth of stock. Uh, what's going to be the trigger mechanism for you to take advantage of that? So you're referring to our shelf prospectus, um, and that's a very common, um, and, and there are a lot of cannabis companies out there that have a shelf prospectus. And so we look at the shelf prospectus, and the reason we filed it is just to have it as a tool in the toolbox. Um, so it's it's out there, and it basically allows you to have a mechanism pre-filed with your regulators so that if and when, as a company, you choose to utilize it, it, it gives you access or basically you don't have to go through the approval process. You've, right. you've gone through all of that vetting. And So how are you um, thinking about that, though? I mean, what are, what are as you discuss that uh, at the board level, I realize it's, it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a standard operating procedure for, for companies yep. such as yours. But there has to be a discussion about uh, the metrics that you're going to use to decide whether or not to trigger a portion of that shelf offering or all of that shelf offering. So, um, again, as a a public company, um, board discussions and particularly forward-looking statements are very, very regulated. Um, So what I can tell you is at this point, like I said, it hasn't been finalized yet. And um, we are looking at it as as simply a a tool that we could we could make available um, if we determine that um, that it's needed at some point in the business. That's Kim Rivers, CEO of TrueLeaf, the largest medical marijuana company in Florida. Since we recorded this interview earlier this month, the company has finalized plans with its Canadian financial regulator to raise up to $250 million in various forms over the next two years if it decides to. Still to come, the company is not interested in the newest cannabis industry coming to Florida, hemp. But selling medical marijuana in another form? Well, that's different. Oh, we are so excited about edibles. We do think that we'll see... Rapid adoption from patients were asked daily by patients, whether it's in our stores or through our call center, when are edibles coming? Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Today, it's our interview with the CEO of TrueLeave. 
Florida's cannabis business is booming, and the future form of the industry is growing now in small plots of land, including one in South Dade County. Last year, the federal government made industrial hemp legal for the first time since 1937 and gave states the freedom to create hemp programs. A new state law takes effect July 1st, beginning the process of creating the state's framework for allowing hemp to be grown at an industrial scale. It's a business TrueLeaf CEO Kim Rivers says she is not interested in. But she is looking forward to new medical marijuana products getting regulatory okay in the months ahead. She spoke with me and WLRN's Danny Rivero. The medical marijuana program in the state of Florida is is growing at a um, astounding rate, and uh, we have uh, uh, and we are laser focused in continuing to service um, our patients um, in that capacity. Um, I think that in, in the hemp program in Florida is is fantastic. Um, I think that it is definitely a win for the state of Florida, particularly our agricultural communities. Um, and I'm looking forward to assisting in any way that that we can um, in, in helping that program come to fruition. Um, but with respect to TrueLeave specifically uh, getting involved, at least in the near term, I would say that that's, that's not something that is, um, that is on our mind. Are the margins not there for you? Uh, it's not. It it is. It is purely a um, a a situation where we have a core business and we are focused on that core business, and that is not in our core business. And in one of the filings you from last month in in Canada, um, truly wrote that uh, that the company extracts fifty thousand grams of active THC or CBD per week. How much of that is actually CBD? So great question. It varies from week to week. Um, but I can tell you that as a um, general um, rule in Florida, and when you look at the weekly reports and the weekly numbers that are put out by the Department of Health every Friday, there's a breakdown in the number of milligrams dispensed in THC and then in low THC or CBD. Now, rem- remember that in Florida, the definition of low THC is less than 0.8% THC. So it is a true um you know, concentrated CBD product generally. Um, but th- that breakdown is generally 96 or so percent on the THC side and 4% on the CBD side. So it is a bit lopsided. Um, in that 96% number, it is important to note that any product that's above 0.8% THC automatically falls into that 96%. So in other words, you could still have products, like for example, we have a product that's a 16 to 1. It's 16 parts CBD, one part THC, but it does fall above that 0.8%. So it technically goes in that 96% category. So you also have ratioed products. So anything that might be like a one part THC, one part uh, CBD, there's some 12 to 1 products, et cetera, um, would fall in that 96%. So um, it's not all, you know, uh, super high THC, but it does uh, technically, it would not meet the definition of low THC as set forth by the Florida legislature. What's the edible opportunity in Florida for True Leave? Oh, we are so excited about edibles. Um, we have um, an entire uh, kitchen that has been uh, built out in our um, big manufacturing facility, which is located in Midway, Florida. Um, And we are uh, anxiously awaiting uh, final rules by the Department of Health. So edibles is interesting in Florida in that it requires um, regulations by two different agencies, the Department of Agriculture, which traditionally uh, regulates uh, food products in in Florida, as well as the Department of Health, of course, which um, regulates medical marijuana. And so 
both agencies are required to pass rules. So the Department of Agriculture has passed their rules um, and we are prepped for um, our food safety inspection, which um, they are telling us they will be able to do within a certain period of time of the Department of Health passing their rules. Um, we have our GMP um, inspection, food safety inspection lined up. That's and good so manufacturing we're awaiting them. That's GMP, right. Good, good manufacturing, manufacturing practices. That's right. That's right. So our entire production facility is GMP certified. And so our, our kitchen, of course, will be as well. Um, our allergen program is set up. Our, our HACCP plans are set up. So we're very excited. We've also partnered with um, a number of companies in other um, markets. So we've worked out licensing arrangements with them to bring, um, to manufacture uh, their products in Florida and to distribute those to our to our patients through our dispensary. So we're, so we're very excited. So those wouldn't be imported from California or Colorado. That's, They'd be, that's correct. The to recipes be clear, would, yes. The recipes would. That's right. But the raw that's materials right. are here. How much do you have invested right. in this edible opportunity, which still has not been mm. able to come to market yet? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that I have that broken down. Um, the, the kitchen was a part of our, um, and the build out of the kitchen was part of our uh, 55,000 square feet uh, manufacturing facility that was part of our use of proceeds um, with the, the going public um, uh, proceeds. So out of that 60 million, a portion of that was used on our Midway facility. So it was fully funded um, through through those um, through through that activity. And then uh, we have a the head of our edibles program who's been on board for about six months. But aside from that, we are trying to keep it lean while we wait for um, that final, the final rules. What could be the lag time between the green light from the state and an edible product showing up on store shelves and True Leaf dispensaries? So in true, truly fashion, um, we are sitting on go. Um, so I, I think it will be a very quick turnaround. Of course, after rules are passed, um, the requirement in the state of Florida is that we have to have um, a specific product approved by the Department of Health. So we have those amendments drafted. Um, and as soon as we can confirm that they will comply, one of the things that we're waiting on, for example, is a universal symbol that will be required to be on every edible package. And so uh, we need to have that finalized um, along with if there are any other specific requirements um, that the Department of Health uh, deems important um, that we haven't you know, contemplated. Um, so we'll make those changes and then submit that amendment to the department for approval. And then as soon as we have that approval, um, we'll be ready to, um, to begin manufacturing and then, of course, getting them shipped to all of our stores. You had mentioned that uh, smokable marijuana now accounts for about 30% of your business in Florida. Uh, if yep. edibles uh, are released into the market, what does that product makeup look like for True Leave uh, <laughs> over the next year between edible, smokable, and oil? Oh, the uh, the crystal ball question. Edibles is interesting. Um, I think that we'll see um, certainly a, a pretty robust onboarding because it will not require, we don't believe it will require a patient to go back to their physician because there already is an oral um, category. So um, assuming that that is the case, um, we do think that we'll see, you know, rapid adoption um, from patients we're asked daily um, by, by patients, whether it's in our stores or through our call center, when are edibles coming? So I think that it could be as much as 15, 20% 
maybe initially as high as 25% um, of the product mix. And again, I think it's going to, to we'll, we'll be driving that some too because we will have a very um, robust product line with a lot of variety of products for folks to choose from. So I think that, you know, it's, it's hard to pass up, you know, the chocolate bar, at least for me. <laughs> That's Kim Rivers, CEO of Medical Marijuana Company, Truly. Now still to come, efforts toward expanding legal marijuana use in Florida. The line between what is medical, what is recreational, it does, it does become um, kind of an interesting conversation. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. If it weren't for a citizen-driven constitutional amendment, marijuana may still be illegal in all forms and for all uses in Florida. As supporters of medical marijuana were gearing up to put a question on the fall ballot in 2014, lawmakers took the cue and okayed a bill allowing a very limited use of low-THC cannabis oil. The 2014 ballot measure failed to get 60 percent support. A different version was put on the ballot again in 2016, and this time 71 percent of voters okayed a constitutional amendment allowing wider use of medical marijuana. Now, there's an effort to put a similar question on the 2020 ballot that would expand marijuana to recreational users, but that effort could face new obstacles. This spring, the legislature passed a new bill that puts more requirements on petition-driven ballot questions. People gathering signatures, for instance, would have to be paid by the hour, not by the number of signatures gathered. Those asking people to sign petitions would have to register with the state, and the petitions would have to be turned in to elections officials within 30 days of being signed. Governor Ron DeSantis has yet to receive and decide on the bill. Kim Rivers is the CEO of medical marijuana company TrueLeaf. It's the largest operator of dispensaries in the state and operates in California and Massachusetts, both places that allow recreational use. She thinks if the Florida bill becomes law, it will hurt the odds of voters deciding the fate of recreational marijuana. She spoke with WLRN's Danny Rivero and me. And we haven't, you know, taken a an official an official position, but um Obviously, we we do believe that um, access to cannabis is is a cornerstone of our business. Um, what I can say is that it's interesting because the line between what is medical, what is recreational, it does it does become um, kind of an interesting conversation. So, truly, so, operates in three states: Massachusetts, mm-hmm. California, and Florida. How would you describe yep. that line in Florida between medical marijuana and recreational use? Of marijuana. Well, in Florida, it definitely, of course, because of the physician interplay, it certainly is a medical, it's a medical market. Um, there are stated conditions. There's documentation that has to be um, provided to the state by the physician. Very, very different, of course, in, in California, where, as you mentioned, there is um, a recreational market. Um, one thing that's interesting here in Florida is that because it is a medical market, um, product is not taxed. Um, in Florida, because in Florida we don't tax our medicine, whereas in um, certainly on the recreational side, that would be you know I would I would anticipate that um, the state would pass a um, a taxing a pretty robust probably taxing structure. So that's a whole separate policy conversation. Um, but certainly in California, both recreational and medical uh, marijuana is allowed. Um, also in Massachusetts, um, both medical and then recently passed um, recreational uh, cannabis is allowed. Um, also. In, in Massachusetts. So um, 
we'll we'll see. Um, Florida, I think, tends to trend um, more on the conservative side, um, and so I think that I think that we probably have you know a bit of time before that conversation surfaces. I'm wondering if your medical sales were immediately impacted when California went to recreational or just, you know, over the last couple days and weeks, uh, it's slowly rolling out in Massachusetts. Have you seen an immediate impact on your on your medical line once once these things go recreational? So California, we're not, we are 80% closed on that, on that business. Um, and so, and it's been operating at a pretty steady state. So I would say that there hasn't been a huge swing. I mean, that's been uh, both medical and recreational for a little while. Um, Massachusetts, we are finishing out the build out of our cultivation facility uh, in 2019. So you'll, we'll start to see revenue in Massachusetts in 2020. Um, I would say in, in monitoring uh, the Massachusetts market, which I think is um, interesting because, you know, recreational just came on board there. Um, what we have seen is an increase in activity, sales activity across the board. Certainly the overall market um, has, has increased dramatically um, in Massachusetts with the uh, onboarding of, of recreational. That's TrueLeave CEO Kim Rivers. Now, if you missed any of this program or last week's program on the business of cannabis, you can search the term Sunshine Economy on iTunes and find a podcast. Pilar Uribe is our technical director. Katie Lepre is our engagement producer. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio.